Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. On Election Day in November, what will voters be thinking about? They're thinking about the economy. They're thinking about education. They're thinking about health care. But what about our environment? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll explore how gubernatorial candidates from around our region are thinking about climate change and the switch to clean energy. And researchers take on a new public health challenge. The most frequent cause of death in the lobster fishing community is falls overboard. Saving lives at sea could be as easy as life jackets. Plus, we'll explore two growing industries, glass eels known as elvers. If you look close, they almost have little puppy dog eyes and a little smile uh, with their the way their jaw is shaped. And seaweed. These are all industries that will actually improve the quality of the water in the Gulf of Maine as climate change continues. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start our show with two stories about young people and ways to stop the violence in their lives. We're going to go first to El Salvador, one of the world's most violent countries and a place that has strong ties to international gangs that exert their influence here in New England. While the Trump administration focuses on cracking down on gangs like MS-13, calling gang members animals and young miners from Central America wolves in sheep's clothing, others are trying a different approach, showing young people a glimpse of their futures beyond the gangs. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has our story about two organizations working thousands of miles apart with a similar goal in mind, keeping young people out of gangs. It's only a 10-minute drive from the four-star Sheraton Hotel in San Salvador, El Salvador, to the neighborhood of Las Palmas. Selena de Sola is our escort into the community, which is known throughout the city as a territory of the 18th Street Gang. The reason we can't take pictures and all that stuff is because, you know, there's always people watching. Everybody knows exactly who comes in, exactly who leaves, what they're here for. And so you, even if you can't see, you're, you're being watched. And we take a sharp like left turn onto a narrow street, you get the sense you're traveling into a ravine or a gully when you enter Las Palmas. Most of the homes are constructed with concrete blocks and tin roofs, and they're sort of stacked on top of one another. It's densely populated with one main road in and one road out. And as De Sola says, it's extremely isolated from the rest of the city. For residents of Las Palmas, simply walking up the hill and across the street to a bus stop in rival gang territory could end in violence. We arrive at the public school and meet Maritza Trejo. She started volunteering at the school eight years ago. On Trejo's first day, she asked four different cab drivers to bring her to Las Palmas. They all said they wouldn't go there. Trejo says the stigma chained to the community is hard to break. 
like when people look for work outside of the neighborhood. A lot of the kids change their address. You know, they don't put Las Palmas, they put it's just San Salvador. But the employees know that, so they'll keep asking, okay, so where, where exactly in San Salvador do you live? What are they seeing when they see Las Palmas on the ID? They immediately see gangs, you know, and so they think maybe you're not a gang member, but you're probably the cousin, the brother. And so the employers don't feel safe and they would just rather not take the risk. It's a Saturday, and the school is full of children, seven years old to high school students. They're here for cosmetology club, science club, and English club. A group of teenage girls practice a dance routine for an upcoming competition. Others run and kick soccer balls off the walls. El Salvador has one of the highest murder rates in the world, but this school is a safe space, full of colorful murals and music and laughter, and secured behind a gate. 15-year-old Karen is working up a sweat playing soccer. She takes a break to talk about why she's at school on a Saturday. We are only using her middle name to protect her safety. If there were no clubs here at school, it would be a lost cause. If there were no clubs right now, the young people might be in the streets, stealing, killing, and all kinds of other things. The nonprofit group Glasswing International runs these clubs as part of its community school program. Glasswing has similar programs in more than 40 schools across El Salvador, as well as programs in Guatemala and Honduras. Desola, Glasswing co-founder, says the community schools program is more than arts and crafts and sports. It's about building resiliency in young people and helping them craft a vision of their future beyond the narrative they're surrounded by every day. In El Salvador, young people are exposed to a lot of violence. They're exposed to a lot of trauma. So these kinds of activities really take all that into consideration. Their grades improve, their self-esteem improves. These are really important characteristics when you're talking about violence prevention and youth development. More than 2,000 miles away from Las Palmas, in East Boston, Diego Pizarro carries a white piece of paper with names and addresses scribbled on it. Pizarro is a frontline youth worker with ROCA, a community organization based in Chelsea that focuses on keeping young men out of jail. In recent years, the organization has created a specific outreach program for Central American youth. Pizarro says that's a direct response to an increase in unaccompanied minors relocating to the greater Boston area. We have uh, very young kids who cross the border, most of them without an adult. Most of them are fleeing because something horrible happened to them. Uh, but crossing the border is, is uh, for them, is freedom. But that freedom can be short-lived. And more and more, with access to social media, Pizarro says, a young person's roots travel with him. What we often see is kids who are coming from, let's say, a, a certain part of the city in El Salvador, where is either MS or 18th Street uh, sort of like regulated. If they belong to that barrio, that immediately labels these guys as, as one of them when they're not trying to be part of it. So that's when they're thousands of miles away. Exactly. Pizarro digs up names and addresses from court records. He stops by parks where he knows Central American youth in greater Boston hang out. His goal, he says, is first and foremost, just to let these guys know he cares. By the time a young man has made it on Pizarro's radar, chances are he's had a run-in with the police, ended up in court, and might be serving probation. 
And this is exactly where Roca wants to step in. We figured out, look, there's a whole group of people, people just write off. But if they get the right support and you spend enough time, in fact, they can succeed and be who they hope to be in their hearts and in their minds. Molly Baldwin is the founder and director of Roca. The group has been working in Chelsea and Greater Boston for 30 years, helping young people get their GED, helping them with job skills, and like Pizarro says, just making connections. Right before I went to meet you guys, I was sitting with a young man, and um, he says, look, you, you think I want to be these? You think I want to represent this? You, No, you know, I don't think I have a choice. There's a lot of guys that want to hurt me, and, and I don't want to be sitting around, you know, waiting for that to happen. Where was that young person originally from? He's from Otavo, though. Yeah. Yeah. Back in Las Palmas, we are asked to put our equipment away when we leave the school gates. The less attention we draw, the better. We walk down to a field where a pickup soccer game is underway. I get the okay to pull my equipment out of my bag, and I ask a few of the teenagers about their reputation of their community, what outsiders think. De Sola, the Glasswing co-founder, translates. There are people who think badly of the community, they look down on the community, and people from other communities think that this community is dangerous. But then I ask the young men what they think about Las Palmas. Beautiful, calm, peaceful. Desola smiles and says, this is why we're here. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. Like the teenagers we just heard from, many young people in Hartford, Connecticut, feel their communities are misunderstood and that their voices, especially when it comes to gun violence, aren't heard. Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa De La Torre brings us a story about a youth leadership academy in Hartford that has been studying ways to reduce gun violence. Students have taken their ideas to Hartford's leaders and politicians while also working to get out the vote for the midterm elections. As Vanessa tells us, getting people to care about gun violence is personal for these students. Some people thought fireworks were going off until they saw a kid on the ground. His head was soaked with blood. All I remember is just running. But then after that, I was blank. Tyreek Marquez was seven years old when he was shot in the head. I was struck by a straight bullet. A shootout at the 2008 West Indian Day Parade in Hartford killed one man and wounded six young bystanders. Marquez had the most serious injuries. He's 17 now and a senior in high school. The shooting left him partially paralyzed on the left side of his body. He walks with a limp and his left hand is disabled. Marquez says people always ask him what happened. Like every day, I need, like at any time I could be in class, anywhere. They don't do it like uh, in a disrespectful way, just more out of a, like in a curious way. So he tells them he was shot as a child. You know, I tell them because I'm so used to, used to everybody asking me what happened and things like that. So. It's been a struggle, but we got to overcome obstacles, and that's what I have been doing. Marquez has become an advocate against gun violence. I met him on a recent Saturday at the Greater Hartford Youth Leadership Academy. It's a group of 15 students of color, mostly teenagers in high school, although a few are younger. Many have personal connections to gun violence. If there's free time, they talk about music. I downloaded it because it was young boy, and I thought he was nice. See, with me, when I listen to music, I won't download it. The rest of the time, they go over heavy stuff. Poverty, mass incarceration, educational disparities, trauma. Issues they found that factor into the cycle of gun violence in cities like Hartford. They've been to rallies like the March for Our Lives in D.C. after the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. 
they see a lot of attention and sympathy for suburban victims. But what about the gunshot victims in their neighborhoods? That was at the heart of their discussion at a meeting a couple months back. When it happens in the urban community, it's looked at as, oh, that's normal. It shouldn't be that. It should be, that's not normal, what can we do to stop it? That's 15-year-old Joshua Fee. On a night when the teens were preparing for a rally, they were joined by Nelba Marquez-Green. Her daughter, Anna, was killed in the Newtown school shooting in 2012. Anna was six. If I have one prayer, is no more crying moms. No more tiny caskets. Marquez-Green has Hartford roots, so when she heard about the Leadership Academy, she said she wanted to meet the students and encourage them to keep speaking up. In a few days, the gun control activists in charge of March for Our Lives would be in Connecticut. They'd been traveling across the country all summer registering people to vote. Newtown was the last stop. Marquez Green talked to the organizers and arranged for a bus to bring the students from Hartford. I just remember being this age and just feeling powerless, like is anyone listening, right? But people do listen, they will listen, and every little thing you do, like this program, takes you one step closer to that next thing. The bus picked them up on a Sunday morning in August. Eddie Brown is program director for Hartford Communities That Care, the nonprofit that runs the academy. God, we thank you for waking us up this morning. We actually give us traveling mercies as we travel the road, God, for a good cause. In Newtown, hundreds of people and a line of TV cameras showed up under a big white tent. Tyreek Marquez, who was shot in Hartford when he was seven, stood on stage with activists like Emma Gonzalez from Parkland. At one point, Joshua Fee and Deja Borns went up to the mic. They were representing Hartford. Thank you for inviting us to participate in today's gathering, bringing young people at the forefront of a movement that should not be ours to fix, but we are here. And, and we are not going, going anywhere. anywhere. A few weeks later, the crew was back together again. Fee looked back at the rally and said he was proud. <laughs> it was some parts where I was just like, come on, you got this. And it was like, it turned out really good. I feel like overall we did a good job. But then it was time to keep the momentum going. After the rally, they've got other goals. All right, so. <laughs> Program director Eddie Brown has a full agenda planned. We're going to talk a lot about the midterm elections, getting into voting, and why we should vote, why it's important to vote. As for Tariq Marquez, he'll get his own chance to vote next year. His 18th birthday is in the spring. I've been waiting. I've been wanting to vote, so it's going to be kind of exciting. In the meantime, Marquez is keeping busy. He was in Los Angeles in late September as one of 100 young delegates chosen for a national summit called We Vote Next, aimed at getting young people to vote. Marquez's goal was to bring back strategies to help his team out in Hartford. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De La Torre. Coming up, how gubernatorial candidates around our region are thinking about the environment. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming.
The frightening study released last week by a U.N. panel shows that climate change has become an even greater and more immediate threat than the already dire warnings had predicted. But climate change still doesn't rise to the top of the list of concerns in the statewide political races around our region. That's a bit surprising, considering that New England residents seem to want their elected officials to do something about it. A poll this August from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication shows that about 56% of Americans want their governors to do more to combat climate change, and that number's a bit higher in coastal states like Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. So how are candidates talking about climate change? Well, with us now is Annie Ropeek. She's a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio and the New England News Collaborative. Annie, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. Also with us is Bruce Gellerman. He's a reporter for WBUR. Hi there, Bruce. Hey, greetings, John. So, Andy, let's start with you and with the Republican governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, who's up for re-election. What has his record been on issues of climate change and the environment? Chris Sununu's taken a pretty hands-off approach when it comes to climate in his first two years. As our governor, he often will say it's more of a federal issue than a state one. He has said in the past that he's not sure about some of the scientific conclusions that are broadly accepted about the role of carbon emissions in climate change, for example. This is actually him taking a bit of a step back from how he talked about the issue on the campaign trail. Sununu is an MIT-trained environmental and civil engineer. He used to run a ski resort, so he has tons of firsthand experience with this issue. And he has played that up in the past. But in the state house, he has taken more of a step back and taken a wait and see approach and, and left it to the federal government. What about his Democratic challenger, Molly Kelly? Molly Kelly really toes the Democratic Party line when it comes to climate change. She often will bring it up the same way that Sununu does, where they like to sort of say the word, but we don't really hear a ton of specifics from either of them. Here's some tape of Molly Kelly answering a question about natural gas at a forum during the primary campaign. You mentioned climate change. I believe climate change is real. We have a governor who said climate change is not real. So I think that what policies we move forward uh, on our uh, energy have to be based on fact and on science. So beyond that, we don't hear a ton of specifics from Molly Kelly. She says we need to wean off fossil fuels, increase renewable development. She has a few ideas for how to enact that, but again, doesn't go into a ton of detail for how to fund or scale up that development. Let's go to Massachusetts and talk about the Republican governor there, Charlie Baker. How has his record been on environmental issues and climate change? Well, according to the Environmental League of Massachusetts and half a dozen other environmental organizations around the state who give him a grade every every year, the latest grade has been a C, and he's been C all through his term of office so far, and uh, he gets uh, a couple of Fs. He gets uh, nine Ds, four Cs, five Bs, and four As on 27 different issues. So that's a pretty wide range, but I would guess that he grades a little bit better than a lot of Republican governors around the country. He's a Massachusetts Republican, after all. So (laughs) so that C grade is probably something that's about what you can expect. Tell me about that, about about his place within the Republican Party. Well, he's an anomaly, as you say. He, uh, you know, he wrote a letter to the Department of Energy when Trump wanted to drill offshore for gas and oil. And he wrote a very stern letter to the head of the Department of Energy saying, no way, Jose. Massachusetts is, is at the end of the energy road. So we have to import most of the energy that we convert into electricity and heat. So, you know, he's cognizant of that. He's been pushing big time into offshore wind, you know, but he takes a very regional approach to energy. 
because we are, you know, kind of landlocked in sense without offshore wind. We are landlocked from our energy supplies. So he has to look north, south, and east and west. So he's taken a, a very practical, pragmatic, but not a very ambitious, cutting edge. I think this is the environmental uh, organizations here say, you know, he's okay. He needs to be a lot bolder. Well, what about his Democratic opponent in the gubernatorial race, Jay Gonzalez? Where does he stand on some of these issues? Gonzalez is more progressive, if that's the term to use in, 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 in joining with environmentalists and, and, and people who are, believe and say and scientists who assert that we uh, are entering a cataclysmic climate uh, future. Uh, so he takes a very much, a much more aggressive kind of approach. He wants to triple the renewable portfolio standards that we have. He wants to achieve 50% of renewable energy by 2030. He has, uh, you know, offshore wind, he's doubling down. But in that sense, he's, he's going along with the governor who's proposing another 1,600 megawatts. He wants to eliminate constraints on solar energy. There are net metering caps and so on. He wants to require that old buildings uh, where it's possible to have solar. And he definitely opposes the expansion of natural gas pipeline infrastructure. Not surprisingly, he wants to make Massachusetts the first state in the nation to adapt carbon pricing, basically a carbon tax on all fuel imports, fossil fuel imports that contain carbon. Of course, the candidates on the campaign trail are only going to talk about these issues in as much as the potential voters really want them to or care about it themselves. Let's actually hear a bit from Elizabeth Henry. She's president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts, talking a little bit about what Massachusetts voters are thinking about uh, this election season. They're thinking about the economy. They're thinking about education. They're thinking about health care. But... We know that across the Commonwealth, there are about 600,000 people for whom environment is a number one or number two issue. And that's a lot. It seems like a lot, Bruce. Put that into context for us. Is 600,000 people who really care about environmental issues a lot? In context, there were 2.2 million votes cast in the last gubernatorial election here in Massachusetts, and Baker won by just 40,000 votes. So you could say that's a lot. But, you know, in terms of that list of going down, you know, what's the importance for the, the electorate here in Massachusetts, it's issue number five, maybe six on their list. So what do people vote on? Annie, how about you? And What are you hearing in, in New Hampshire? Are people concerned about the environment this time around? How much do you think people are, are paying attention to this issue with all the other things they have to worry about at the polls? You know, interestingly, we don't really even have as much polling data on this as Massachusetts does. We uh, have some periodic voter surveys that come out from the University of New Hampshire. They asked voters before the primary election what their top problem facing New Hampshire, what they thought the top problem was. But the choices were limited to drugs, health care, education, and several economic issues. We didn't see energy or climate or the environment in general make that list. But I can say anecdotally that when I talk to voters, especially Democrats, it can be a top issue in places like Portsmouth or in, in areas that are affected by water contamination and emissions issues. It does rise to the surface a bit more. I think energy is also really rising to the top during this gubernatorial campaign. But as we've said, you know, that's not necessarily an environmental issue for every candidate and every voter, even though, you know, it is sort of linked to climate change at its basic level. And, you know, John, I, I should say that, you know, you, if you change the word energy for jobs, mm -hmm. right? 
right? Mm. Uh, then the equation starts changing, I, I think. So, you know, how do you phrase, you know, energy issues? How do you frame them? Talk about jobs and people start listening a, a little differently. That's absolutely what we're seeing in New Hampshire, too. It is a completely an economic issue, whether you're you're trying to advocate for renewable energy development as a job creator and economic driver, or whether you're saying we need to keep rates down and not oversubsidize renewables uh, in order to help businesses survive in the state. One of the things that I've heard from uh, the people who are running for governor of Connecticut, especially on the Republican side, is what can a governor really do to help combat climate change? Yeah, maybe there are jobs there, but what can a governor uh, do, uh, him or herself? Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's here's Governor Chris Sununu after uh, Donald Trump, the president of the U.S., pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord in June of 2017. You know, it's not my job to go through the whole accord and, understand, and look at the in-depth impacts across the country economically. I don't know, Annie. It sort of sounds to me like Chris Sununu is saying that, yeah, maybe I can do something in terms of uh, more clean energy jobs, maybe in as much as it helps the economy of New Hampshire. This is something I should be concerned about. But it's not really my job to go through the Paris Climate Accord and figure out what little New Hampshire can do to solve this global problem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when we asked him after President Trump made that decision around the Paris Climate Accords, what Governor Sununu thought, he said he hadn't really given much thought to it because he saw it as a federal issue. And he he tends to sort of focus on the specific policy that you're talking about when it comes to climate change, where other candidates might zoom out and say, like, well, regardless of this specific policy you're talking about, I believe climate change is real. It's something you hear from Democrats a lot. But Governor Sununu, you know, if you ask him about federal coal pollution or air emissions policy, he'll say, well, we don't have coal plants in New Hampshire, but I'm studying it. And, you know, sea level rise, I think we don't see as much conversation around that as maybe we will in several years from now when that is seriously impacting our seacoast region. And then the same thing for warming winters that is guaranteed going to affect snow and ski tourism in our northern part of our state. And we don't see a ton of direct action on that yet. But I do think this will become a state issue at some point, whether he likes it or not. And, you know, John, pulling out of the Paris Accords makes the subnational entities, you know, governments like states and cities, much more important because it's going to be up to them to do something about climate change. And also they're going to feel the effects of climate change most directly. You know, these are very complex issues. They defy political positions because they really are bread and butter economic issues. Hmm. And I want to finish with this, and I think this is an important thing for for journalists like us. For years, we've been asking candidates questions like, do you believe that humans cause climate change? Do you believe that climate change is real? And the answers to those questions often take up an awful lot of the space that we might devote to uh, covering a topic like this. How do you think about this as a reporter? Because as I think you've both said, the settled science is pretty clear Could we be asking, I don't know, tighter questions, deeper types of questions of these candidates? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be doing both, right? I think it's important that voters know if candidates do believe and acknowledge that climate change is real and understand the causes. But then when they give that answer, it's also our responsibility to push past that to the next question. This, You know, the question that says, "Okay, you've said that you don't believe it's real. And then we lay out the science that says that it is. And we say, given these facts, you know, these realities, what do you propose to do about this particular aspect of climate change that affects our state? It's a question they're going to have to answer regardless of their views on the science. And I think it's our job to to keep kind of pushing that issue forward. I'm, I'm starting to really see it as one of those issues that's that's tipping past something we can kind of have a, 
a debate around the yes or no of it, the whether or not of it. And, and you know, it, it really needs to become a debate around the how are we going to address it? Because we're seeing that in the response from from voters and from the scientific community to the UN report, which you mentioned at the beginning, and it's not going away. And so I think the more solid the science becomes and solid the consensus becomes, the less acceptable it is for us to just let a candidate stop it. No, I don't believe. Annie Ropeek from NHPR, Bruce Gellerman from WBUR, both cover energy and climate change for us. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome, John. For more reporting on how Maine politicians are talking about plans to bring hydropower down from Quebec and how Vermonters are thinking about their role in combating climate change, just go to our website. It's nextnewengland.org. The U.S. dairy industry has welcomed a new trade pact between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico because it will open up the traditionally protectionist Canadian market to more U.S. dairy products. But as VPR's John Dillon tells us, farmers north of the border fear the new trade agreement is the beginning of the end of a system that has kept many of them thriving while their U.S. counterparts are increasingly going bankrupt. Several hundred dairy farmers and their supporters took their tractors and their voices to the streets of Granby, Quebec, about an hour north of the U.S. border. The protest was part of a week-long series of demonstrations throughout Quebec, Canada's largest dairy producer. Farmers here say the trade concessions agreed to by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which include more dairy imports from the U.S., ultimately threatened their way of life. They put a bomb in our system. Philippe Swenen runs a small dairy farm not too far from the Vermont border. He's seen farmers in the U.S. struggle for years as prices plummeted due to overproduction. He says farmers in Quebec are now facing some of the same uncertainty. Some have stopped expanding or are thinking of selling out, he says. So now they're afraid that the price of milk is going to drop and the quarter will be cut, so they stop everything. Canada's dairy economy is based on supply management, including quotas. It's a system that's meant to keep farm production in line with consumer demand. It's built on three elements. Strict production limits that can be bought and sold among farmers, fixed prices paid to producers, and tight controls on imports. But that last point, the restrictions on imports, was especially galling for President Trump and his trade negotiators. Late last month, Canada agreed to increase U.S. imports to about 3.6% of the overall Canadian market. Marcel Halogen is a former dairy farmer who now raises beef in Notre-Dame-de-Stambridge, Quebec. He says the recent Canadian dairy concessions follow similar moves in earlier trade deals with the European Union and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So if you add them all up, that's almost 10% of our market we're giving away to foreign producers. And that's what the problem is. But that problem is an opportunity for U.S. farmers. Anson Tebbett is Vermont's agriculture secretary. The more we can export, the likely it will drive the price up to our farmers in Vermont. Tebbets is particularly encouraged by Canada's agreement to lift import restrictions on what's known as Class 7 milk. That's ultra-filtered milk used to make cheese and yogurt and also processed as a milk drink. So that could allow uh, more U.S. dairy to be sent 
into Canada and getting it more in balance, uh, particularly skim milk powder and infant formula. But the farmers demonstrating in Quebec are discouraged by the changes, and they accuse Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of caving to President Trump. Quebec dairy farmer Gerard Vermeulen says the increase in exports won't measurably help U.S. producers. This trade deal is going to do nothing or very little to the, to the American farmer because our market is, is, is 10 times smaller than yours and we're giving you 3, 3.59%. For you, it's a, drop, it's a drop in the ocean and for us, it's going to destroy our industry. Vermeulen travels a lot in the States. He says the irony is that many U.S. dairy farmers want a supply management system similar to Canada's. That's what he heard this summer when U.S. farmers discussed supply management plans. I was in Albany, New York for the dairy proposals, and if I didn't hear at least 10 times in the day, we need a system like the Canadians. If I didn't hear it at least 10 times, well, I didn't hear it once. And and look at, what, what, look at what's happening. It, it makes no sense to me. For Canadian farmers, this dispute is less about free trade and open markets than it is about keeping food production local and helping farms stay viable. In Granby, this point is driven home when a local member of parliament displays a container of ultra-filtered milk imported from the U.S. It's a product called Fairlife, distributed by Coca-Cola. He bought it this morning at a nearby big box store, and he says it's more expensive than a liter of Quebec milk. Taking a swig from the container, he suddenly spits it out without swallowing. Doesn't taste as good either, he says. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Coming up, we'll explore a few futures for the fishing industry. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Commercial fishermen in New England are required to have life jackets on board their boats, but they are rarely, if ever, worn. That's a dangerous practice for lobstermen. In Massachusetts, falls overboard are the leading cause of death while on the job. Now a research team is trying to change that outcome by changing the life jackets, not the fishermen. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri has the story. You see anything, Frank? Steve Holler and Franklin Artis are hauling in a lobster trap. They lean over the edge of the boat and dump its contents into a holding tray. Lenardis hauls the 50-pound trap to the back of the boat, rope trailing behind him. It's a dance between me and him. Him getting that done, me getting this done. Because of his weight, his strength, he'll knock me right on my rear end. And he's done it a few times. Over the course of the day, they repeat this dance 300 times. Today, everything goes smoothly. But Holler remembers one day in February when a routine haul went very wrong. A few traps had frozen to the deck. So I was tugging and tugging and tugging with a, with a hook to try and free them up. And they did free up. 
and I had lost my balance and I was falling backwards. The fall launched Holler into the freezing Boston Harbor. It's an absolute shock. First, you're saying, I, in a split second, you're saying, I can't believe this is happening. And then what sets in is like, I've got to get out of the water, but your body has got a whole different idea. He managed to grab the last rung of a ladder on the dock and pull himself to safety. Holler wasn't wearing a life jacket, and today, out in the middle of the water, he isn't wearing one either. For many lobstermen like Holler, life jackets get in the way of their work. Never even considered it. That's Peter Fredrickson. He's been fishing for over 40 years. Big bulky life jackets, number one, you can't work in them, and number two, it's hot. And on a day like today, to have anything else besides shirts and a T-shirt and your, your rain pants is going to be miserable. So no, I hadn't given it a thought. The most frequent cause of death in the lobster fishing community is falls overboard. Julie Sorensen is with the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. A 16-year study from the Centers for Disease Control found that in every fatal fall, the lobsterman was not wearing a life jacket. But Sorensen acknowledges the barriers to use. In addition to the heat, bulk, and high costs, they can run between $80 and $200, some of the styles with buckles can get caught in traps, making the job even more dangerous. So Sorensen determined it's the life jackets that have to change. I think you need to assume that people are doing the best they can and that maybe what we need to do as public health researchers is make it easier and more rewarding for them to do the safer thing or the healthier thing. Sorensen launched a research project aimed at redesigning the life jackets. She and her team recruited 181 lobstermen in Massachusetts and in Maine to wear different types of life jackets for four to six weeks. Both Peter Fredrickson and his son Josh, who works as Peter Sternman, participated in the study. Josh says they were given versions that clipped around their waists. If you live through the 90s, it's like a fanny pack, basically. The small pack has a CO2 cartridge that deploys if you pull the ripcord, inflating the pack. It's a far cry from the old orange horseshoe vests, but Peter Fredrickson says it's still not perfect. The belt loosens up and it falls off. It wasn't easy to clean and you get dirty on a lobster boat, but it worked. Those issues and other feedback from the study are now with the manufacturers, who will use it to reevaluate the designs. The researchers plan to start phase two next summer, using social media and community events to get more lobstermen interested in the new jackets. They may not win over everyone. Back on his boat, Steve Holler says if there was a design that didn't get in his way, he might consider it. But life jackets just aren't his main concern. I don't think of it that much. There's more hazards on the boat. I could lose fingers. I could get some serious lacerations with the knives, uh, hand injuries, leg injuries. Falling overboard is on my mind, but it's not at the very top, sadly to say. But for the Fredericksons, the study changed their minds. I'm going to wear it all the time now. You know, I'm 65 years old. I get up on the gunnel and my balance isn't what it once was. I I feel like this, I've never gone over the side, knock on wood, but I could. So it makes sense. Peter Fredrickson hopes others will take advantage of the new jackets as well. Because lobstermen never think they're going over until the moment they do. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Hannah Schnatry. Maine is the only state with a significant fishery for transparent glass eels, otherwise known as elvers. They can fetch thousands of dollars a pound when shipped to Japan, China, and other Asian countries where they're then grown to market size. Now there's one Maine entrepreneur who wants to add the value herself, growing these eels to full size here in the U.S. It'll be the first time it happened here. As part of a series, Aquaculture's Next Wave, Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports that this startup called American Unagi is showing early signs of success. 
When the elver season opens each spring, Maine fisherman Justin Jordan likes to try one out. I eat the first elver that I catch every year just for good luck for the season. It's a little slimy and it's a little salty like the water, but it doesn't taste like much because they're so small. Sushi lovers will tell you that full-grown eels, called unagi, are pretty tasty. That's why Sarah Rademacher started growing eels a few years ago in her Thomaston basement. So it was like dingy stones, you know, dirt floor, and a glorified large aquarium with a couple of tanks. And also we had um, butchered a pig, so that was hanging. It was quite quite the, <laughs> the scene oh, with like an exposed light bulb. <laughs> the scene today is a little less macabre. Last month, Rademacher took over this indoor recirculating aquaculture system at a University of Maine research center on the Mount Desert Narrows in Franklin. It's a small warehouse with rows of shoulder-high circular green tanks, pumps, and hoses, plus some proprietary technology Rademacher is developing. The tanks brim with wriggling eels, some pencil-thin, some fat as cigars. We've got thousands in this tank, thousands of fat little eels. Eels are actually fish with fins and gills. If you look close, they almost have little puppy dog eyes and a little smile uh, with their, the way their jaw is shaped. Rademacher drops in a pinch of microalgae and fish meal. She says the right feed is essential to the flavor and protein content that will make them marketable and happy. That's a sign of a happy eel. When they swarm and feed really excitedly, almost splashing the water. These eels, like all Anguilla rostrata, started out in the Sargasso Sea off Bermuda. They spawn there, and then those larval eels, when they hatch, they just drift on the currents. So again, they don't know if they're going to land in the Caribbean or Canada. Or in a fisherman's nets at the mouth of a river in Maine. Wild eel populations are under stress worldwide, and many countries are restricting harvests. But Rademacher recently won federal permission for Maine's elver fishermen to exceed their annual quota by 200 pounds, which she will raise to maturity. She hopes to sell 20,000 pounds this year. The question is, who will eat all that American unagi? Wait a few minutes now. The patrons of Sammy's Deluxe Restaurant in downtown Rockland, for one. Owner and chef Sam Richmond doesn't serve it up sushi style, though. Instead, he smokes it. European style. It honestly winds up tasting not dissimilar to a mild kielbasa or a mild bacon. It's really juicy. Richmond says customers are intrigued. Because of the really great story of American Unagi and everybody's familiar with elvers and the value of that fishery. So it's sort of people know about them but haven't really eaten them. So I think they're eager to to give it a try. They'll be joining a growing world population that's hungry for more and more seafood and increasingly able to pay for it. And in the U.S., domestic supply is nowhere near meeting demand. I mean, we already import about 90 percent of our seafood. 90 percent. James Anderson directs the Institute for Sustainable Food Systems at the University of Florida, and he's a former advisor to the World Bank. He says the U.S. needs to step up its efforts to bring aquaculture back home. Our marine aquaculture has made a lot of technical innovations. In states like Maine, there's been a lot of progress. But elsewhere, it's been almost no growth, and we just have chosen as a nation to depend on imports. 
Back in Franklin, Rademacher is doing her part to change the equation and trying to capture some of the value that's right now going abroad. She's already lined up investors for a full-scale commercial facility in the Midcoast. That's our goal. This is a stepping stone to our commercial production. We're planning on being online next year. She says she can boost output more than tenfold, selling more than 250,000 pounds of eel in the U.S. next year at as much as $25 a pound. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Another growing industry in Maine is seaweed. We spoke with Susan Hand Shetterly about this industry. She's the author of the new book, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. She started by telling us about the health benefits of eating seaweed. Seaweeds, because they incorporate whatever is in water, and if the water is cold and clean and good, they're going to be full of nutrients. They also have a lot of roughage. So the question is, how well can we absorb seaweeds? And some phycologists have said it's probably better to feed seaweed products to fish or to some other animals and then eat what those animals produce in their own flesh. But that's not true, for instance, in Japan. The Japanese, because they've eaten seaweeds so much and for so long, can thoroughly digest it. They just have a different biota in their gut. Since you mentioned Japan, I I should ask about the after effects of the nuclear power accident on Japan several years ago surrounding that tsunami and, and how maybe that that changed the way in which we need to source and, and think about growing seaweed as a food source. How, how did it change things? It changed things here on the coast of Maine because so many people who counted on seaweeds and love seaweeds in this country to eat didn't want to buy Japanese source seaweeds anymore. So they wanted to come to a clean, non-polluted healthy place for seaweeds, and that was Maine. That was the Gulf of Maine. And so all of a sudden, these small businesses along the coast got so many requests that it changed some businesses. And now a lot of people in the Gulf of Maine are realizing what they need to do really is aquaculture with seaweeds. Hmm. That's the only way because the world is turning to seaweeds more and more as a food source. And we have to be sure we've got it. You describe seaweed farmers uh, in the Gulf as a, a vanguard that will help to heal our relationship with the ocean. Could you talk a bit more about the, the work that these seaweed farmers are doing and why you, you see it as so important? What they want to do is to make sure that the Gulf of Maine is clean, that they have best practices, that they can do two things. If they're wild harvesting, that they can make sure that they harvest, but not too much, so that there's still enough seaweed forest left for wildlife. What they feel is, if they can get this right, a lot of things that we've gotten wrong in our fisheries, and we've gotten an awful lot of things wrong, the way seaweed is managed here in Maine could turn out to be a model that could be used in the entire Gulf of Maine for different species, and perhaps even, and I know this maybe sounds a little grandiose, but all over the world about how to preserve what's good and healthy about the ocean and to fix what we've broken, and also 
how to deliver clean, healthy, good seaweeds for people to eat or use in different ways. And a lot of this, Susan, points to a type of adaptation that people who work the sea in Maine have had to make because of climate change, because of changing regulations. Do you see this all as part of one shift that's happening in Maine and in the Gulf of Maine to adapt to some of the changes and find new ways to live with and also make money from the ocean? I think you've just gotten to the heart of my book. We have managed our fisheries, and you have to remember that the Gulf of Maine had the most fantastic cod haddock, halibut fisheries. We've managed them poorly. We've overused, overfished, and now we've got climate change and we've got an increased acidity in the ocean. Seaweeds and scallops and oysters and mussels and clams are all very clean. What they do is filter out what they need for food, and the seaweeds absorb carbon dioxide and actually use it to grow as long as they have enough sunlight. So these are all industries that will actually improve the quality of the water in the Gulf of Maine as climate change continues. And that may, in a sense, help other species hold on. Do you worry, though, that that climate change is changing the ecosystem, changing the habitat for these various organisms so much that it may move more quickly than we're able to adapt? Yes, I think we all worry about that. I think everybody who's doing this this hard work in science and in aquaculture and these people who do the wild harvest very, very carefully, everybody's worried about that. Susan Hanshetterly is the author of the new book, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Susan, thank you. Thank you. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Thanks. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Carlos Mejia is our digital producer. We had help this week from Andrew Perella, Mike Garth, and Rich Tozier. Our theme music is by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcast. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by the Publix Radio, WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.